This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Dr. James Dankert. Dr. Dankert is a cognitive neuroscientist and professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Waterloo. He also runs the Dankert Lab, where he and his team study the psychology and neuroscience of boredom, as well as the nature of attention and the consequences of stroke. He's also the co-author with John Eastwood of the book, Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. Dr. Dankert joins me today from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So what exactly is boredom? Boredom is a call to action. It's the best way I can say it. I think I love the quote from Leo Tolstoy most when trying to describe boredom. He calls it the desire for desires. So when we're bored, we want something to engage in, but we just don't think that anything that's currently available to us is going to work. So it's that sort of frustrated desire to be engaged with the world in something meaningful for you, but just not being able to achieve or satisfy that desire right now in the moment. Does everybody experience boredom the same way? I believe so. There's been a number of studies in different cultures that sort of show that boredom is about as prevalent, regardless of where you measure it. And and the question you're really asking is, does it feel the same? And it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to have it feel differently for different people across the world. Because people will often say that they don't get bored or they'll say that, you know, I've heard very occasionally people say, I like being bored. But If you probe them, those people, you actually find out that they don't like boredom. They just like downtime. And if you probe the people who say they never get bored, they do get bored. They just deal with it quickly. So I think it's a very ubiquitous human experience that we all have to some degree or another. We just deal with it and focus on it differently. What is happening in our brain when we're feeling bored? We've still got a long way to go to understand what's happening in the brain when people are bored. But there is a handful of studies out there, some of which we've done ourselves. And so there are a few things that I can say about that. One is that we, when we look at electrical signals in the brain, EEG, we find that signals that are normally associated with focusing attention tend to be diminished when you're bored, and they tend to be diminished for people who are prone to boredom. And that fits with this idea that when we're bored, we're struggling to engage. And what we need in order to engage is to focus and sustain our attention. But we've demonstrated in a lot of different ways that people who are prone to boredom struggle with that focusing of attention. And you can see that in the, the EEG signals of the brain. We've also looked at using functional magnetic resonance imaging, so fMRI. And in that instance, we find that a network of brain areas known as the default network is activated when people are bored. What we did is we put people in a scanner and we had them watch this video for eight minutes of two guys hanging laundry, which is mind-numbingly boring. Anyway, the default network is this series of brain areas that are active when there's nothing external for you to do. So when there's no task out there in the world that you need to engage with, you can activate this default network and sort of turn your thoughts inward. So that makes a little bit of sense too in this, in, in that when we're bored, we are very much inwardly focused. It's me that's bored. And, but the thing that's interesting about it is that when we made people bored, there was something for them to do. There was a movie to watch and we told them to watch it. And so even when there's something external to do, if it's boring and you just can't get a foothold on it, you can't make any sense out of it or enjoy it in some way, then you might turn to that network of brain areas that more, more commonly is about 
inward focuses and, and inward thoughts. There's been a couple of other studies from others that show similar sort of results. And then there's one particular brain area that I think is going to be important for future research. It's known as the anterior insular cortex. It's a part of the brain that we know represents salience or things that are out there in the world that are relevant to our goals right now. And in our study, that part of the brain was downregulated. It showed less activity. But in another study from, um, from uh, Dalmas and Whitman, some colleagues of, of mine, they showed increased activation in this brain area. But the way they did that is that they asked people, they made them bored. They didn't do our task. They did a similar task that made people bored. And then they said, how much money would you be willing to pay for a music download? And the idea was that if you're really, really bored, you'll pay more money for the music because you're like, just give me anything to get me out of here. And that's exactly what they found. And the amount of money you were willing to pay to get out of your boredom was associated with activity in this area of the brain, the insula, which sort of suggests that, you know, in our hands, when there's nothing for you to do but watch this boring movie, the insula shuts off. In their hands, when you're trying to determine how badly you want to get out of being bored, the insular insula cortex turns on. As I said, though, there's a ton more for us to do to try and understand what's happening in the brain when you're bored. You've said that boredom is a state of wanting, not of apathy, because some people put boredom in line with laziness. What do you mean by that? Well, apathy is just apathy. You're quite right. People often say that boredom just looks like laziness. But when we're being lazy, we're not really highly motivated to do anything. So the classic notion of the couch potato is a person sitting on the couch doing nothing, but content to be doing nothing. And boredom is anything but contentment. Boredom is a restless agitated sort of state where you desire something to do. You want to be doing something meaningful, but you can't get there. So boredom is this motivational state. Apathy is a kind of lack of motivation, an absence of motivation. And so the two are not the same at all. You've also said that boredom, and you mentioned this earlier, it's a call to action, that it serves a purpose in our lives. So what can it actually do for us? Right. Boredom is a functional experience, a functional, affective, cognitive experience, and it is one that pushes us to act. What it's essentially telling us is that whatever you're doing right now is not allowing you to showcase your skills and talents. And we feel good when we're engaged with the world. We feel good when we're doing things that do showcase our skills and talents, that do allow us to, to demonstrate to ourselves and perhaps to others around us that we are capable human beings. And conversely, it feels bad when we're not doing that kind of thing. So boredom is just a signal. Its function is to let you know right now the thing you're doing isn't working for you. It's not meaningful enough. It's not stimulating enough. It's not allowing you to showcase your skills and talents. And so you need to explore your environment for better things to engage with. And by better, we mean things that are, to you, more meaningful, more purposeful. So let's say you have a, a job that involves a very menial or repetitive task. So you're doing the same thing all day, every day. Some people might find that boring, but some people might not find that boring. It certainly is a, a wide variety of individual differences in how we find things to be boring or not boring. And so you're quite right. Somebody in a job that has a large degree of monotony and repetition, somebody might find that perfectly feasible and fine and someone else might find that just torturous. There are ways, however, to sort of cope with that 
monotony that you might find in your job because even if you're not doing something like a, a an assembly line job where you're doing the same thing hour after hour uh, for any job that we can think of there are parts of it that are a little bit more tedious than others that you nevertheless have to get through so the thing to do is to sort of reframe the situation and what i mean by that is to try and think about it differently there's evidence from people who work on assembly lines that they frame their work as I'm trying to beat my personal best from the last hour of work. Now, all of a sudden, something that was tedious and monotonous has become a personal challenge. You're trying to beat your personal best. And now because you're doing that, the monotony is easier to bear. It doesn't feel like it's quite so boring. You don't have to reframe it in that kind of personal challenge way. You can reframe it in terms of your larger goals. So if you find yourself with a particular task at work that you think, oh, this is just tedious i hate doing this particular thing you can remind yourself but in general i do like my job and it's also pretty good at putting food on the table you know so you you have these other ways of thinking about the value of what you're doing even if in that moment the specific thing that you're doing isn't particularly enticing to you so that's probably the best advice i would have is that when we find ourselves confronted with tedium at work to do our best to to reframe it either as a personal challenge or in the context of the larger goals that we have in our lives. Find some value for you personally in what you're doing. Why is boredom something that needs to be studied? It's a great question. And I think that uh, up until about the last couple of decades, people really considered boredom to be fairly trivial. Um, I love this phrase that I got from a journalist a while back, that boredom is just part of the furniture of life. But it's not. Because when it becomes something that you experience frequently and intensely, and this is the situation for people we call boredom prone, the consequences of that frequency and intensity of feeling boredom are not good. So we know that it's not good for your mental health. People who tend to be boredom prone tend to have higher levels and higher rates of depression and anxiety. And it sort of goes beyond just depression and anxiety. They also have higher rates of things like aggression. And that's clearly not good for your mental health either. People who struggle with boredom, the highly boredom prone, also tend to have problems with drugs and alcohol. So they tend to drink alcohol more than those who are not prone to boredom. There's also work showing that boredom prone people have higher rates of problem gambling. And the work on problem gambling is interesting because perhaps the most common outlet there are slot machines. And many people who are addicted to those machines will say that they go to them out of boredom And yet in becoming addicted to them, they fail to solve their boredom and it just leads to all kinds of other problems for them. And the last thing I'd say is that that we've known more recently in a similar vein to the problem gambling that people who become sort of addicted to their phones or social media, what we call sort of problematic smartphone users, they too are engaging in that behavior where they turn to their phone frequently, they feel anxious when they don't have their phone. They're doing that out of boredom in the initial sort of stages, but it has negative consequences for their mental health. So all of that put together suggests to me at least that boredom is not trivial. It has these very consequential outcomes that it's important for us to learn. And then there's one final thing that I'd say about that initial relation I talked to you about between boredom and depression. There's a kind of chicken and egg problem there which comes first, the boredom or the depression. Now, my colleagues and I suspect that it's boredom that comes first and that if boredom is not well responded to and if it becomes more frequent and more intense, that you can then start to see 
with sort of symptoms of mental health problems like depression and anxiety. Well, if that's the case, because that's just a speculation at this point, then it could be that we use measurements of boredom as a kind of early warning sign to try and intervene in people's mental health at an earlier stage before things get worse. Like I say, that's all speculative, but I think it highlights the importance of understanding boredom and perhaps trying to find ways to intervene. It also sounds like, and I'm not a psychologist, but that having a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose in your life in general, not just in your job, but in anything you do, could potentially mitigate some of those mental health effects. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of work showing that people who are boredom prone tend to have a lower sense of life meaning, and that in turn is related to poorer outcomes for their mental health. So you're absolutely correct. If we can foster a a really positive sense of meaning and engagement, I would say as well, not just meaning, but being engaged with our work life, being engaged with our family and friends and our community, I think if you can foster those things in a positive way, you're not likely to experience boredom often, and you're also likely to have these positive outcomes for your mental health. Now, you've been studying boredom for well over 10 years, but it's been an interest for much longer than that. How did this become a focus of your work? Yeah, there's two pathways that led me to boredom. I think one is the sort of physician healed myself. That is that I experience boredom a lot, not as much now that I'm, uh, I just turned 50, but certainly in my 20s and 30s, I experienced boredom a lot and hated it. And so I wanted to sort of understand it a little bit better in the early days in the hopes of trying to eliminate it. I think I feel now that it's not to be eliminated, it's to be learned from. And so that's a bit of a journey for me personally. But also and another personal pathway that led me here is that when I was much younger, um, my older brother, who was my best friend at the time, had a serious motor vehicle accident and he recovered from that. But the kind of brain injury that you get from those accidents is what we call an acceleration, deceleration injury. The, the brain shakes around inside the skull, which is never good. And during his recovery, he started telling me that he was bored a lot. But and even with things that he used to love, he was a musician, a drummer, and he was having trouble getting engaged with that again. And he eventually did get back into that sort of stuff. But certainly in the early stages of his recovery, he reported being bored often and intensely. And to me, that suggested, well, something organic has changed in his brain. And as I mentioned, the acceleration and deceleration injuries, the part of the brain most affected is known as the orbitofrontal cortex, a part of the brain that just sits just above your eyes at the front of your head. And that part of the brain is really critical for representing reward and value. So it suggested to me that, you know, perhaps he's just had a a threshold that has been elevated for what he considers to be engaging or pleasurable. Um, And that was fairly early on. I think I was 19 when he had his car crash. And that sort of drove me to study psychology and and eventually to become a clinical neuropsychologist. um, And, you know, many years later to get into the boredom research. What makes you feel bored? (laughs) as I say I don't get bored as much now as I used to in my 20s and and so reflecting back on my 20s it's kind of hard to remember specific sort of things but I guess um, I'm a kind of person that likes to get on with things I like to sort of if we're going to do something let's do it now let's not wait and that's good in some senses and bad in others it tends to it tends to mean that you know I jump I I leap before I look um, which is not always great But if I find myself in a situation where 
you know, there is something that we are going to do, but we're not going to do it for a little while. It's going to be 15 minutes, half an hour before we start. So I think about a family trip, you know, my wife and my kids, we're going to get in the car and go and visit someone or go and do something, but we're not leaving until two o'clock and it's one thirty. And I'm thinking I've got half an hour. What good can I do in half an hour? And I sort of start pacing around the living room thinking, I don't want to start anything that will take more than half an hour. I don't want to start anything particularly complex. And also I think, you know, I wanted to be on the move and starting something might feel less like I'm moving and in motion and acting in the world. And so I, those are the circumstances for me where I feel sort of fairly intensely bored because I want to get on with something, but there are situations that are preventing me from doing that. Does impatience stem from boredom, do you think? That's a great question too, and it's one that we haven't looked at. So I, I can't answer that really well. There is, interestingly, some work suggesting that people who procrastinate more tend to be boredom prone. So people who sort of put things off. And this is this sort of in, interesting kind of conundrum of boredom proneness. So I, I talk about boredom, the state, uh, that feeling that you have in the moment of being bored as a call to act. And I just describe myself as wanting to be a person who acts and gets on with things. And yet the boredom prone person fails to launch into action often. So why they, and it's one of the key questions of our, of our research is why, why is it that a boredom prone person who recognizes the desire to be engaged with something fails to launch? Or when they do launch, they launch into sort of maladaptive responses to boredom. So I don't know about impatience. It may well be born of boredom in some instances, but uh, we haven't looked at it. I'd like to talk about the pandemic. You studied the effects of boredom during the pandemic in several different areas. How has the pandemic impacted our tolerance of or maybe our ability to cope with boredom? Yeah, I think when we first started going into lockdowns in you know early parts of 2020, I think the whole world had a kind of, oh, you know, wait a second here, boredom's going to become a problem. <laughs> and so we anticipated that being locked down was going to mean that we'd have this sort of parallel epidemic or pandemic of boredom. It turns out that, that, that boredom did increase. There's a, some good studies. Erin Westgate and her colleagues are, uh, in a, about 100 and something countries measured state boredom across time in the pandemic, and it did actually increase. People were more bored probably because of those kinds of social distancing and lockdown measures. But you're asking a question about you know, what happened to our capacity to cope with it. And I don't have great answers for that. What we did is we looked at whether or not being boredom prone was going to make it harder for people to adhere to those lockdown measures and those social distancing measures. And in two studies, one that we published from data early in 2020, and then we replicated it with another sample early in 2021, so a year later, we did find that people who were high in boredom proneness tended not to follow the rules of social distancing as much. And it's as though those constraints were just sort of too hard for them to bear. That constraint on their ability to act in the world was not one that they could tolerate because it might have meant that they were experiencing the state of boredom much more intensely during those times. We did another study um, during the pandemic where we looked at other factors that might influence people's mental well-being. One of those was sort of creativity. And here we're not talking about, you know, whether or not you painted a huge canvas or you, you sculpted a wonderful statue. We're talking about everyday creativity. You know, did you make your own greeting card for a friend's birthday? Did you even just redecorate your office or something like that? These are considered sort of everyday activities of creativity. And what we found is that people who engaged in those everyday activities of creativity had a better outcome for their mental health, perhaps 
unsurprisingly. But what it shows is that for those people, they found ways to engage despite all the lockdown measures and the social distancing measures. And those engaging creative activities helped maintain better mental health for them. The negative for people with boredom proneness is that in that study, the highly boredom prone tended not to engage in those creative activities quite so much. So they engaged in perhaps more negative behaviours? There was a hint in this data uh, we haven't published, although I believe that um, another lab has shown the same thing, that there was a hint of increased levels of, of drug and alcohol intake. And of course, they did increase their, they did have higher levels of social distancing rule breaking. And so, you know, they engaged in those activities that are not what many of us would consider to be positive responses to boredom, but they failed and struggled to engage in the, the positive response of being creative. And again, that's just a really interesting question for us to understand why they might succumb to the negative responses of boredom, but not the positive responses. I find you know, in, in those months when we were just sort of starting to come out of the pandemic, that my bar of what I found interesting became much lower. (laughs) And so even things like being able to go to the grocery store or just go to the corner store and get milk became really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. I know what you're saying. I I mean, to me, it was about just a change of scenery, right? So, and I, I found actually midway through some of that. So towards the end of 2020, I guess, it's not midway through the pandemic, but <laughs> anyway, at some point, I did remember thinking I really want to go to my office and I'd been working from my basement the whole time. And then it struck me, why do you want to do that? I mean, it's the same routine as getting up in the morning, going down to the basement, closing the door and pretending it's your office. <laughs> so the reason that I think I wanted it was just because it was a change of scenery. In the before times, when you come to work in your office, you get up and leave your office to go and get a coffee, go down the hallway to talk to a colleague. Spontaneous things happen in the day that you can't predict. Whereas when you're in lockdown and you're in your basement office, everything is highly predictable and nothing much changes. And so I found myself certainly just wanting those simple things, like you say, going to the shop to get milk or something, just wanting those simple trips to drag me out of the, the same scenery and to somewhere else to look at, not the same four walls. Does your research about boredom continue to surprise you? Yeah, we continue to learn different things, that's for sure. I mean, just in the question you asked me just before about, you know, why are boredom-prone people engaging in negative outlets and not positive outlets? I mean, this raises questions of effort. Uh, Are people who are boredom-prone just less willing to put effort into what they do? And I don't know whether or not that's the case or not, so we're certainly interested in asking that question. And, you know, we followed up the creativity work that I just mentioned by actually having people who are boredom prone do tasks that assess creativity. And we find that not only are they not engaging in creative outlets more, they're actually not very good at them. So so it turns out that that particular outlet's not going to be available for, for boredom prone people. Those kinds of questions, I mean, it's not really, they don't, I don't really get surprised. I just get energized. So I start to think about, well, what can I ask next? And I I guess I've been doing science for, you know, 25 years or so now, and I don't get surprised a lot because the data very rarely turns turns out the way you think it's going to. You know, if you you hypothesise something and it comes out perfectly the way you thought it would, that would be, you know, cause for big celebration (laughs) because it rarely, if ever, happens that way. So I guess I don't get surprised, but I certainly do get energised. I think, you know, every new experiment that we do opens up a whole range of other questions that, 
to that point we hadn't necessarily thought of. Is there something that you have learned in your research that you know now that maybe 10 years ago you didn't know that you think, wow, that's interesting to me or poignant somehow? Well, I think the, the evolution of how I thought about boredom is poignant to me. Um, and there's no real one finding that drew me to this. But as I said before, you know, when I first started studying it, it might have been within the back of my mind, the thought of, can I eliminate this from my life? Can I eradicate boredom from my life? Because I hate it that much. But I think I've come to, to understand through the work that we've done, understanding things like life meaning and, uh, you know, and, and what role that plays in boredom, understanding things like agency, so the desire to feel like you're in control of your actions and the, and the role that plays in boredom, and looking at some work that others have done in animals, which sort of shows that boredom is present in species other than humans, which suggests that it has an evolutionary past, and if it does, that, that it's going to be mighty hard to get rid of. So the evolution of my thinking is I don't want to get rid of it, I want to learn from it. I want to understand how better to integrate it into my life because it does serve that function. So to me, that's that's poignant, at least, that I think that's a growth, um, not only in my thinking but personally in terms of understanding, no, don't run from boredom, don't be afraid of it, don't let the agitation and the restlessness get on top of you. Just learn to find ways to cope with it better. I'd like to talk a bit about kids and teens and that sort of... <laughs> That, that thing that parents hear all the time, I'm bored. You know, I asked my 11-year-old what, what she wanted me to ask you about boredom. And she said, I get bored when my parents say I have to do something that isn't on a screen. So can you ask him what I can do instead? Which <laughs> was rather horrifying that she couldn't think of anything. <laughs> what do you say to your kids when they tell you they're bored? Yeah, so... The knee-jerk reaction, and, and most parents have, have heard it, particularly from kids younger, you know, 11 and younger, that, that they might come to you and say, I'm bored. The knee-jerk reaction is to provide solutions, is to say, well, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? You know, go ride a bike, you know, go read a book, you know, go play with your brother, go build some Legos. And often we will try and come up with all of those sort of solutions uh, that are absent a screen because we worry. I, I have two boys myself, a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old, and, the 15-year-old spends a lot of time on screens. And, yeah, we, we do worry about how much of that is healthy. But we shouldn't really be trying to provide solutions for them because the best outcome of a kid asking you, I'm bored, what can I do, is for them to figure it out themselves. So the challenge then, as you articulate when you, your 11-year-old wants to have screen time and you're asking them to do you know, a chore that is not going to involve a screen, the challenge is to help them figure out outlets to deal with their boredom that might not necessarily require a screen. And that is that is difficult. I wouldn't want to diminish that challenge at all. It, it, it's hard to do. One of the things I think there was actually a study of adults, not children, during the pandemic, and it showed that people who planned for their boredom, so if they sat down and they thought about when I get bored in the future, this is what I might turn to, those people had much better outcomes for their mental health. So I think you can transplant that to working with children. Sit down in calm times, sit down in times that, that they're not bored and say, why don't we work together and figure out a boredom plan? And the plan has to come from them because the real challenge and the, the reason why giving them solutions doesn't work is that the real challenge of boredom is for you to demonstrate your agency, to demonstrate that you are the author of your own life. And the kids need that just as much as we do. So if you provide the solution, go ride a bike. Well, the kid has already thought about that and decided that that's not on for right now. I don't care about it. It's boring. 
despite the fact that, you know, in an hour's time, they'll do exactly that and be happy. So it can't come from you. It has to come from them. But if we sit down in, in those sort of calmer times and say, okay, what kinds of things do you think might work and get them to generate a plan, then they know that they can turn to that plan when boredom strikes. And hopefully, you know, not everything on the list is going to always work, but a list with four or five things might give them at least some options. And I, I say at least four or five because for myself, often I will turn to my guitar when I get bored and just go and pick it up and start playing. But it only works about 80% of the time. And in fact, sometimes I know when I'm walking over to pick it up, it's not going to work this time. You know, I have the feeling inside me that it's just going to be one of those times. So it's better to have not just one single thing that you turn to because that will fail sometimes. It's better to have a list of things. And, yeah, in terms of then making that list have things that don't just involve screens, that's a critical challenge as well, you know, getting outside and engaging with nature, finding a, a, a friend to, to play a sport with. There's uh, things like that that come to my mind immediately. But I, uh, as I say, I, I wouldn't want to diminish that challenge because I know it all too well. Do you think that technology has, in fact, made us more prone to boredom? I don't like the notion of, of being a sort of Cassandra that says, oh, my God, that the, the Internet has ruined my brain. You know, the, the Internet became fairly widespread and, and, and popular in its usage in the mid-90s. And in about 1998, the first scientific paper coming out saying that there's a, such a thing as Internet addiction appeared. So we started worrying about the influence of this technology on our mental health and our behaviour almost the instant that it became prevalent. And this harkens back to Socrates. So Socrates thought that writing was going to ruin our brains. He thought that if we write everything down that we think, then that will destroy our capacity for memory and our capacity for thinking. Because if you let the external page do your thinking for you and do your remembering for you, well, then you're just going to weaken the faculties in your brain. And the irony of Socrates, of course, is that we wouldn't know any of that if Plato hadn't written it down. So the new technologies are not inherently things that are going to cause us problems. And I think that the internet has done remarkable and amazing things for us, particularly during the pandemic, where we were able to maintain connection both socially and through work by being able to be on the internet. So I, I want to say that from the outset. But there are, for a small percentage of people, and the, the, the work suggests around 4 to 8% of people, depending on, on the study you look at, there are some problematic interactions with technology. The technology we're talking about here is our smartphones, where you sort of have the world at your fingertips, and social media. So John Alhai uh, from the University of Toledo has done a lot of this work, and some labs also in China have, have replicated this, that boredom proneness is in part responsible for what they call problematic smartphone use. So it's a kind of a vicious cycle. When you're bored, you turn to the phone to occupy your mind. But it's not really that meaningful, and it's not really that satisfying, and it's not really allowing you to demonstrate your agency. It's kind of passive. You're letting the world come to you and occupy your mind rather than deciding on a goal that you want to pursue. So you do that for however long, and then you put the phone down, and realise that, oh, I'm still bored. So then you turn back to the phone again. And you'll find yourself in that vicious cycle, turning to your phone more and more to passively occupy, occupy your mind. And so, as I say, for that small percentage of people, the engagement that we have with technology can become problematic um, and start to look a lot like other addictive behaviours. People 
use their phone more and more frequently. They feel anxious when they're not with their phone and so on. So, yeah, there, there is a, a problematic relation there, but it's not as though technology has made that a problem. It's that technology is just our current outlet for boredom. You know, prior to the in, invention of the internet, it, we would have found other ways to, to have that kind of interaction. We seem to be living busier lives than ever with this constant stimulation. There's always something to do. But you say that sometimes feeling bored is a call to take a pause and actually to relax, not to find something to do. Right. And, you know, I think there's a, an important lesson to be learned there. There's a, a, a TED talk from a, a woman called Manush Zalmarodi. Is one of these people who wants to, to claim that boredom will help you develop creative ideas. And I think the logic there is a little bit twisted and, and, and backwards. But what she's essentially saying is engage some of that downtime. Try and disconnect from the thrust and parry of the world. Try and disconnect from the fast pace that you're sort of talking about and find that downtime to give you time to pause and consider what your life goals are, big and small, and, and how you're going about pursuing them. So I do agree that in the lives that we lead that are quite fast-paced, we tend not to give ourselves that sort of time to think. And boredom is a good opportunity to do that. It's a signal that allows you to think about, well, what's meaningful in my life? What's purposeful in my life? And am I effectively pursuing the goals that I want to pursue? So absolutely, boredom can be used as a signal to sort of take that downtime. You know, we're living in uncertain times and stressful times. Um, what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? I think that when people discover that there's a challenge, they typically rise to it. And, you know, for some challenges, we might not rise quickly enough. I'm thinking about something like climate change. And for those that think deeply about that particular challenge, there is a kind of sense of urgency and, and anxiety about whether or not we're doing enough. And it's fairly clear to, to, that we're not, that we need to be working harder. But you can look around even for something like that and still see that there are some enormous efforts and some really positive efforts that people are making in the, in the right sort of direction. So when I think about something like boredom, I think we are over the last two or three decades starting to recognise it as an important area of inquiry, of study. We are recognising that it's not trivial, not just part of the furniture of life and that there are consequences for being too bored. And so there's a rise in the number of people, number of scientists studying it, and there's a, a rise in popular or public interest in that work, which I think is really hopeful in terms of just advancing our understanding of it and advancing ways in which we might be able to better cope with this, the experience. So just the, the sheer fact that there are more people interested in this and giving it serious consideration and thought, I think, makes me optimistic and hopeful. Dr. James Dankert, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was absolutely my pleasure. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.